This morning we're going to start in John 14. So if you have God's word, please turn to John 14. As we're turning there, I'd just like to highlight one announcement. Next Sunday after church, I'm going to invite you all to stay for lunch because we're going to have a potluck lunch um, after church next Sunday to to celebrate Reformation Day. Reformation Day is historically known as the Sunday right before Reformation Day, which is October 31st. So we want to commemorate this 500th anniversary of the Reformation uh, around a fellowship meal. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll eat some food together. I will give a very brief, I promise, very brief summary of the Sola series that we're finishing next weekend. And I also want to provide an opportunity for you to share with everybody what you have learned from the series or and a text of scripture that has really been instrumental in your life to help you understand the need for Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, and ultimately the glory of God alone. So please, uh, if you don't have plans next weekend, please plan to stay for an hour or two after church so we can enjoy some fellowship together. But for now, we have the privilege of directing our minds towards Solus Christus, Christ alone. We are nearing the end of our five-part series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Three weeks ago, to review, we laid the foundation by taking a look at the doctrine of Sola Scriptura from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And to be clear, what we mean by Sola Scriptura is not no creed but the Bible. Because patristic creeds, church father uh, creeds, uh, creeds that were penned in the early church era, historic confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Doctrinal statements like the one that we have for our own church, they're all useful and they're all necessary. So when we, when we profess Sola Scriptura, we're not saying that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, right? What we mean by Sola Scriptura is that an accurate interpretation of the 66 books of the Bible is the one and only divine, universal, inerrant, immutable, inspired, chief authoritative source for truth. In other words, you could say that the Bible is at the top and everything else is subservient, accountable, and correctable by the Scripture. Furthermore, I would go further to say that every effort fallible man may make to systematize theology must be must be defended, proved, and supported by an exegetical finding of what the entire Scripture plainly says. Amen? If we are right to profess Sola Scriptura, and we are, then we must ask, what does it say about salvation from the wrath to come? And by the way, if you hear me say salvation from the wrath to come often... It's a reference to 2 Thessalonians 1. We could also ask, how does a man stand just or righteous before a holy God? 
If Scripture alone is our authority, where does it lead us? Does it lead us to an altar? Does it lead us to a priest? Does it lead us to a sacrament or to a ritual? If the foundations that the foundation that we stand on is Scripture alone, juxtaposed to human tradition, then we're compelled to answer those questions by echoing the words of Paul in Galatians 2.16. A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul was saying clearly that salvation is through faith alone. Sola fide. That was the second sola that we preached. And so if we're saved through faith alone, how do we obtain that faith? That's the follow-up question. Last week, Aaron answered that question very clearly by appealing to the words of Paul in Philipp, uh, excuse me, um, Ephesians 2, 1-10, where Paul explicitly states that saving faith is obtained by grace alone. Sola gratia, the third sola. And so now at this point in our series, we must ask yet another follow-up question. What is the object of our faith, and where is the source of grace? It's solus Christus, Christ alone. Faith alone and Christ alone and grace alone is the grace of God extended to us in Christ alone. I'll say that one more time. Faith alone is in Christ alone, and grace alone is is the grace of God extended to us in Christ alone. Without solus Christus, faith is worthless and grace is nowhere to be found. Solus Christus is the title and the theme for this morning. The fourth out of five solas of the Reformation. Once understood, once we understand and grasp solus Christus, we can see how it drove reform in these following ways. Priests were redefined as pastors. Plain robes replaced vestments, which are flashy, expensive garments. Tables replaced altars. Pulpits moved to the center of the congregation. And the ministry of the word replaced sacramentalism, which is the belief that sacraments are necessary for salvation. Most of all, Solus Christus pointed sinners back to the one and only man who was qualified to act as the only Savior, the only sacrifice, and the only mediator. By Solus Christus, we mean those three roles. Solus Christus means that Jesus is the only Savior, sacrifice, and mediator. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Normally, as you know, our practice here at SV Bible Church is to take a paragraph of Scripture, set forth its context, explain its meaning, and make appropriate application. But today, I'm going to do the unthinkable. I'm going to preach probably my second thematic sermon this morning. Because there's too much to show you. There's too much in the scripture that clearly reveals 
Solus Christus. So I just want to give you a more of a, 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 a shallower but more comprehensive view rather than go really deep and narrow. And we're going to do that by going to three different passages this morning, so be ready to navigate today. First, I want to show you that Christ is the only Savior. So if you're already there in John 14, turn your attention to verse 6. John 14, verse 6, clearly shows that Christ alone acts as the only Savior. Many of you know this verse well. You might know it by memory, and if you don't, it will sound familiar. It says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Have you heard that verse before? Well, the world hasn't. In fact, the world hates this truth. In our age of relativism, which is the belief that there is no universal truth, this is an extremely arrogant thing to say, isn't it? You would be accepted if you said Jesus is a way. You would be applauded if you say Jesus is a savior. If you asserted, hey man, Jesus works for me, but he doesn't have to work for you. You would be everybody's BFF. You could go on CNN or Good Morning America and say, Jesus saved me. He changed my life, but to each his own. Who am I to say everybody must believe in Jesus? If he said that, you'd be loved. But to say that Jesus is the only way is just downright offensive to the general populace. And even amongst some professing Christians. To say that you must come through Christ to be saved, you would be labeled an alt-right, closed-minded, hateful, ignorant, judgmental, old-fashioned, religious bigot, wouldn't you? Why? Because to simply quote John 14:6 is to exclude from heaven anyone who disagrees. That means, by implication, that millions of people are living with a false hope. And in a highly inclusive culture, no one has the right to be exclusive, do they? So, what we have to ask ourselves, remind ourselves, is did the Jesus we see in the Bible intend to convey some type of inclusivism or exclusivism. What did Jesus mean in John 14, 6, in response to a question asked by Thomas? He simply meant this. The way to heaven is exclusively through Christ. The only way to be saved is Jesus. Now, I know for most of you, that's not brand new doctrine. But you need to be reminded because it's not popular. And when we say, less, say things less often or we 
read things less often because it's unpopular, then we start to compromise. So notice the repeating of the definite article here. The way, the truth, the life. The definiteness, definiteness of this grammar is there to indicate that there's only one person that we could go to to find forgiveness from the Father. There's only one person to learn truth from. There's only one person that can provide eternal life. And I'm here to tell you that that person is no priest. The person is definitely no pope. No other man, nor any other man-made system can save. Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior of the world. His teachings, claims, life, all unequivocally reveal that the only way to heaven to escape the wrath to come is only through him. Brothers and sisters, you need to be reminded of these basic things. Not only because if you don't be remind, you're not reminded of these things, not only would you start to compromise, but you're going to lose gospel urgency. The clear implication of John 14, 6 is that our friends and family who are seeking heaven by any other means are headed straight for hell. One primary reason why we exist today. Why, one primary reason why God left us on this earth is because it was His divine decree that His people go and tell sinners that there is only one way to God. And I'll be the first to admit, I know evangelism is hard. Because we all feel ill-equipped sometimes, don't we? We all fear of being unfriended. We all fear being excluded. We all don't want to pay the cost. I wrestle with that too. But I am constantly corrected by Charles Spurgeon, who said this. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Even though that you and I would get booed off the stage, cursed at, harshly scorned for simply pointing to this verse and saying Jesus is the only way, by simply pointing to that verse to an unbeliever, the prince of preachers rightly said, we still need to go warn the lost. We need to be like evangelists in Pilgrim's Progress and warn people of the wrath to come and point them down the only safe way to go. To the cross, to the hill called salvation. 
since there's only one way to God, not many. It also implies the complete lack of need for an organized set of rituals or some type of vain morality to provide a way to God. The reformers reclaim this truth that only that the only way to God is through Christ alone. We've been going through a series of the reformers and equip for the past four weeks. And I want to encourage you to come to that. Because I've demonstrated, and Aaron and I have demonstrated, by taking a cursory, surface look at some of the key reformers. It's so plain to see that the medieval believers were taught to find a co-savior. They were told that partaking of traditional rites and giving to the church was necessary to aid the sinner in their quest for justification. But when the scripture... When the light of the scripture was uncovered by the reformers, it was discovered that salvation has always been and always will be by grace through faith in Christ alone. Good works of any kind contribute nothing. Baptism, communion, confession contributes nothing. Buying a piece of paper signed by the Pope contributes nothing to a sinner's justification. Jesus alone saves from the penalty of sin. And that truth, as I've said in the very beginning of this series, is just as relevant now as it was 500 years ago. Today, Roman Catholic doctrine is the same with regard to viewing Christ as a co-savior. Not the only Savior. Many Christians, even who attend Protestant churches, think that they can save themselves by being good people. And obviously those who flat out deny Christianity are blinded by the God of this age and aimlessly look for salvation in ways that seem right in their own eyes. So we must love all three groups of these people. And how do we do that? Preach Solus Christus. We must love the world like Jesus did by preaching that Jesus is the only Savior. Not only does Solus Christus mean that Jesus acts as the only Savior, it also means He acts as the only sacrifice. First, he acts as the only Savior. Second, Christ is the only sacrifice. Turn to Hebrews 7. Flip over to Hebrews 7, and we'll look at verses 26 to 27. Now, before we discuss this issue of sacrifice... We need to make sure we're all on the same page with regard to the basic theology here. A sacrifice for sin is needed because God cannot wink at sin, can he? If he did, he would not be just. And we know for sure that God is just because Revelation 16 and 19, for starters, says that God's judgments are just and true. 
That means a a just God must punish sin or else he would no longer be just. So, what then is the punishment? What then is the payment or wages of sin? The Bible says death, right? Our sin, my sin, your sin demands that you pay for it with your life. The justice of God demands that we pay for our sin with our life. That's the problem, right? That's every man's chief problem. So unless God is merciful enough to allow someone else to die in our place, unless someone may be willing to sacrifice himself for you, And you're left on your own. Is is there a sacrifice? Is there such a sacrifice? There is. That's precisely what the gospel teaches us. Let's read Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. It says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. What that teaches is that Jesus died in the place of those who believe. He was the sacrifice He is the sacrifice for sinners so that they don't have to face justice and die. What the author of Hebrews was saying was that Jesus had no sin and needed no sacrifice for himself. Therefore, only one sacrifice by him was needed. One time only for all men all time. Notice it says, once for all. Once. This is the key emphasis in Hebrews. This is the apex, the focal point of Hebrews. So if Jesus' death was a one-time, once-and-for-all atonement, then that means the sacrificial work of Christ never intended to be repeated unlike Old Testament priestly sacrifices. This sacrifice of Jesus, this sacrifice the Reformers pointed to, was complete. And by complete, we mean final. We mean sufficient, never to be repeated. The writer of Hebrews also repeats the same idea in in chapter 10, verse 12. He says, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, This clearly means that Christ's atonement was what? Again, once and for all accomplishment. It is finished. Jesus cried on the cross. It is finished. Did you know that is a very significant theological term? When he cried, it is finished, it's in the perfect tense, which means that once it was finished, it had continuing effects afterwards. Okay, so when you say, I went to the store 
and got a gallon of milk. You take it home, and you have a big family, so you guys drink it all in one dinner, right? The milk's gone. It has no continuing effect. The fact that you went to the store, got milk, drank it all, and I have to go to the store again. But if you said, my wife and I raised five kids. It was an action that you finished, and it has continuing results, right? Because how you raise kids affects how they live. So that is a very small way to illustrate what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Once he died, it had continuing effects for all time. His sacrifice, therefore, needs no supplementation. It is his death that he bore, and his death he bore on the cross for the sins of all who believe in full. In full. So, brothers and sisters, you need to know that it was the reformers who called the church back to this biblical doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. Because Rome believed that in the liturgy of the Mass, the bread and the wine literally is transformed into the body and blood of Christ to be sacrificed again and again and again and again. This doctrine was so integral, so crucial to the church, that during the Council of Trent, if you don't know the Council of Trent, go home and Google that later. During the Council of Trent, they condemned Anyone who would defy the doctrine of transubstantiation. The teaching that says that the wine and the, and the bread becomes the body and blood of Christ through some mystical words uttered by a priest. Canon 3 of Council of Trent says this, and I quote, If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but is not a propitiatory. Propitiatory meaning that it appeases the wrath of God. If it is not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it, pro- or that it profits him only who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfaction, and other necessities, let him be anathema. Anathema, it means consign him to hell. Let him be damned. And I'm so sorry that so many of you have never been taught this. You have to understand that this is what they still believe. They believe that you should be damned because you don't believe that the body And blood literally comes down from heaven every Mass. Think about that. This teaching denied the finality and the sufficiency of my Jesus. And it's practiced countless times every single day. And if you don't know this, you're not going to love our Catholic friends. Because you don't know that they need to be saved. 
That's why this is important. Today, the official position of the Roman Catholic Church has not changed. It still teaches that the sacrifice of the Mass is propitiatory for the living and the dead. So, thank God that he rose up people, men and women, who came along and declared that Scripture says otherwise. They read Hebrews 7. They give up their lives so that they could say communion is a supper, not a sacrifice. It is served on a table, not an altar. The elements are not mystically transformed through a ritual by a priest. They are merely dispensed to all who believe by a minister. And so there is no sacrifice needed. And if there is no sacrifice needed, there is no altar needed. And if there is no altar, what use is a priest? And if there is no need for a priest, what is there left to do? You want to know? Preach the word. Sing and remember Christ's sufficient sacrifice. We could sing a hymn like this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We've sung that here before. So just in that one small verse, even in one phrase, this hymn writer is teaching you that the atonement of Christ is sufficient. When he atoned for your sin, he sealed it. If our pardon is sealed by the blood of Christ, then we need no other sacrifice. Amen? Thirdly, so what Christus means that Christ alone is the only Savior, the only sacrifice. Thirdly, Christ is the only mediator. You thought I, just, you thought I got fired up just now. Wait, wait till we get to this one. So briefly, 2 Timothy 2, verse 5. Go there. Second Timothy, no, I'm sorry. Forgive me. 1 Timothy 2. I got the one that you mixed up. 1 Timothy 2. So as you're turning to 1 Timothy 2, uh, briefly, let me remind you of the context of, of this verse. Paul was writing pastoral instruction to a young pastor, an inexperienced pastor named Timothy. He was dealing with many problems in the church, which consisted of false Judaistic doctrine He was dealing with disorder in corporate worship. He was dealing with the need for qualified leaders. He was dealing with the sin of materialism in the church. And he needed to deal with the priority of prayer in the church. It's in the opening verses of 1 Timothy 2 that deals with the subject of prayer. Paul commands believers to pray for the salvation of those who are in the governing authorities. Did you get that? We are commanded to pray for Donald Trump. Even if you don't like him. We're commanded to pray for our Congress, for our liberal Democrat governors. We need to pray for their salvation. Because we're commanded to. Why? So that we, the church, 
may lead a tranquil and quiet life. When Paul wrote that it is good to pray for kings because God's desired will, not his decreed will, is a difference. It's for all men to be saved. So then in verse 5, Paul makes yet another profound theological statement. He says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Mediator. Zero in on that word. It refers to one who intervenes or intercedes between two individuals to restore peace. Again, this assumes that you know and understand that we are born to this world at enmity with God. Therefore, we need to find peace with God. And how do we find peace with God? We need a mediator. Since the gulf between man and God is so great, we need a mediator. I need a mediator. You need a mediator to restore peace between you and God. Who then can you go to? Who can you plead your case? Who can plead your case to God on your behalf? Who can ensure that the merits of Christ's righteousness are credited to your account and your sin is to his? Who can do this? Do we depend on the intercession of angels, dead saints, priests? How about Mary? Can Mary intercede for you? Can she? Why not? Because that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 969 says this. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside her saving office. But by her manifold intercession, continues to bring to us the gifts of eternal life. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of, get this, Advocate, capital A, Helper, capital H, Benefactress, capital B, and Mediatrix, capital M. So is, is what I just read true? I report you decide. Is that true? Why? Where are you going to go? You're, you're, on the street, you're witnessing to Roman Catholic at work. And, and, and you see them with, 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 a, with a rosary, and they're saying a million Hail Marys. And they say, do you have a rosary? Would you like one? Would you like to join me in prayer? What are you going to say? Well, I, I hope I'm doing my job by equipping you a little bit. You need to go to Second. Tim- yeah, you need to go to this verse right here. First Timothy two verse five. What I just read from the from, from the Catechism is wrong because simply of First Timothy two verse five. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One. There's only one person who can act as mediator for sinners, Jesus Christ Himself. 
And because Christ is the only mediator, all must go to God through him. Salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 So contrary to the tradition of celestial mediators, such as Mary or angels or saints, contrary to the dogma of earthly mediators, such as priests, the Bible says, this is good news, the Bible says you go directly to Christ. Christ is our one and only high priest. He ensures your salvation through his role as our priest, advocate, mediator. Therefore, you must, for your soul's sake, reject any notion of a co-mediator in any form or fashion. Christ is the sole mediator. And it has significant implications for your personal life. Here are two quick ones. Christ as our only mediator, mediator implies the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Confession of sin is made directly to Christ. I'm a pastor, right? I'm no priest. Part of my calling and Part of my passions is to encourage and counsel people with their problems and their sin. But to find forgiveness of your sin, you don't have to tell me about it. Those days are over. You go to Christ. Plead with Christ. No other man can forgive you. No other man has a right to say your sins are forgiven. Only Christ does. How dare any man do what Christ has already done? So as a child of God, you are invited, rather you're commanded, to approach the throne of God in prayer with confidence. Have you ever read Ephesians 3, verse 12? It says, for we have boldness and confident access, confident access through faith in him. So go to Christ often, our sole mediator. We're all priests in that sense. The second implication of Christ being our sole mediator is this. We're equal. We're all equal. In Christ, there is equality in the church. Right? Galatians 3.20, there is no slave, nor free, nor Greek, nor Hebrew, no male, nor female. We're all one. If there is a need for a human mediator between men and God, then wouldn't the highest and noblest calling be to dedicate one's life to serve in that capacity? That was the medieval view. Monks and priests were at the top and common laborers were at the bottom. Because to serve as a mediator between God and men, that was the highest calling. But so was Christus. We abolished the need for priests and monks. Monks is not in the Bible, so I don't know where they got that from. But Solus Christus reclaimed the proper biblical understanding of vocation. 
your life's work. So let this encourage you. This helped me a lot when I was in the army. Every job is for the Lord. Every job, you're doing it for the Lord. The Reformation discovered Colossians 3.23, which applies to all Christians regardless of where you find yourself gainfully employed. Whether it's in the home, discipling your young children, whether you're on the street, digging ditches, or whatever. It's for the Lord. Writing to slaves. Slaves. He was writing to slaves in Colossians 3. He said, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. So if slaves can do their work for the Lord, I think we all can in this room, can't we? So the reformers helped us see the need. They helped us see that, that, that work is not something we do in addition to our faith. This is important. Work is not something that we do in addition to our faith. It's one of the ways we live out our faith. And this theology of work is very much needed today, don't you think? I mean, I've only been a pastor for three years. I know what it's like to live out in the world and have a regular job. I was a soldier. And you can imagine that there were many times when I was running my fourth or fifth mile, thinking I'd rather be doing something else. There were many times when I was on my 10th mile in a ruck march saying, what what am I doing? I I don't want to do this. And I'm sure I don't have to convince you that I thought that a lot when I was in Iraq. Not knowing if it was my vehicle that was going to be exploded the next day. But when I got saved and... When my pastor loved me enough to teach me these things, these Reformation doctrines, I could put on my uniform and go work for some officer that was a total jerk and be content. It was hard, but it helped me a lot. So if you're someone who wrestles with, with where God has you in your vocation, whether it's a homemaker or and a construction worker, anything. If, you're, if you wrestle with that, let this encourage you. you. You are working for the Lord. You're working for the Lord. Let that, let that help you with be, being content. My job as a pastor is not any more noble than the work God has called you to. The Reformation made that clear. Christ alone. He is our Savior He is our sacrifice. He is our mediator. And we learn by repetition, don't we? So forgive me if I sound like a broken record. We need to thank God on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We need to thank God for men like Luther, even though he was an idiot sometimes. Even though he, he, he had quirks and he said some stupid things they were all fallible men like you and I God used them to uncover sola fide faith alone God used John Calvin, Booser, Zwingli Knox 
He used these men to reform the church that was steeped in false gospel. Because they were courageous enough to stand and to preach these things. So it was Christus, name, name, name one. And so I will echo this again. We need, we need a new generation of believers who will stand on the shoulders of these men. For the sake of the church, for the glory of God, we need men who will stand in pulpits and preach Christ. We need women who will teach their children solus Christus. And we need you children to pick up the mantle and carry out the gospel work. And there is no gospel work without Solus Christus. Without Christ alone as our only Savior, sacrifice, and mediator, there's nowhere to put our faith. And there's nowhere to find grace except in Solus Christus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, this the truth of Solus Christus, and thank you so much that we have this precious truth available to us today. Thank you, Lord God, that we have no need for a false mediator. We have no need for a co-savior, a co-sacrifice. You are sufficient. You are sufficient to save. You are sufficient to advocate for us before the throne. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that our salvation is secure and we don't have to doubt. We don't have to live in fear. We can be sure and assured that we are kept. We are sealed, as the hymn writer wrote. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.